Book Fourth, Chapter Two of The Wings of a Dove. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Ken Campbell. That sense of quantities, separate or mixed, was really no doubt what most prevailed at first for our slightly gasping American pair. It found utterance for them in their frequent remark to each other that they had no one but themselves to thank. It dropped from Milly more than once that if she had ever known it was so easy, though her exclamation mostly ended without completing her idea. This, however, was a trifle to Miss Stringham, who cared little whether she meant that in this case she would have come sooner. She couldn't have come sooner, and she perhaps was on the contrary meant, for it would have been like her, that she wouldn't have come at all. Why, it was so easy being at any rate a matter as to which her companion had begun quickly to pick up views. Susie kept some of these lights for the present to herself, since freely communicated they might have been a little disturbing, with which, moreover, the quantities that we speak of as surrounding the two ladies were in many cases quantities of things and of other things to talk about. Their immediate lesson accordingly was that they just had been caught up by the incalculable strength of a wave that was actually holding them aloft, and that would naturally dash them whenever it liked. They meanwhile, we hasten to add, made the best of their precarious position, and if Milly had no other help, for it she would have found not a little in the sight of Susan Shepherd's state, the girl had nothing to say to her for three days about the successes announced by Lord Mark, which they saw, besides otherwise established, she was too taken up, too touched by Susie's own exultation. Susie glowed in the light of her justified faith. Everything had happened that she had been acute enough to think at least probable. She had appealed to the possible delicacy in Maud Manningham, a delicacy, mind you, but barely possible and her appeal had been met in a way that was an honor to human nature. This proved sensibility of the Lady of Lancaster Gate performed verily for both our friends during these first days the office of a fine floating gold dust, something that threw over the prospect of harmonizing blur. The forms, the colors behind it, were strong and deep. We have seen how they already stood out for Milly, but nothing comparatively had had so much of the dignity of truth as a fact of Maud's fidelity to a sentiment. That was what Susie was proud of, much more than her great place in the world, which she was moreover conscious of not as yet wholly measuring. That was what the more vivid, even than her being, in senses more worldly, and in fact almost in the degree of a revelation, English and distinct and positive, with almost no inward but with the finest outward resonance. Susan Shepherd's word for her, again and again, was that she was large, yet it was not exactly a case as to the soul of echoing chambers. She might have been likened rather to a capricious receptacle, originally perhaps loose, but now drawn tightly as possible over its accumulated contents, a packed mass for her American admirer of curious detail. When the latter good lady at home had handsomely figured her friends as not small, which was the way she mostly figured them, there was a certain implication that they were spacious because they were empty. 
Miss Lauder, by a different law, was spacious because she was full, because she had something in common. Even in repose, with a projectile of great size loaded and ready for use, that indeed to Susie's romantic mind announced itself as half the charm of their renewal, a charm as of sitting in springtime during a long peace on the daisied grassy bank of some great slumbering fortress. True to her psychological instincts, certainly, Miss Stringham had noted that the sentiment she rejoiced in on her old schoolmate's part was all a matter of action and movement, was not, save for the interweaving of a more frequent plumped dearest than she would herself perhaps have used, a matter of much other embroidery. She brooded with interest on this further mark of race, feeling in her own spirit a different economy. The joy for her was to know why she acted. The reason was half the business, whereas with Miss Lauder there might have been no reason why this trivial seasoning substance the vanilla or the nutmeg omittable from the nutritive pudding without spoiling it miss lauder's desire was clearly sharp that their young companion should also prosper together and mrs stringham's account of it all to milly during the first days was that when at lancaster gate she was not occupied in telling as it were about her she was occupied in hearing much of the history of her hostess's brilliant niece they had plenty on these lines the two elder women to give and take and it was even not quite clear to the pilgrim from boston that what she should mainly have arranged for in london was not a series of thrills for herself she had a bad conscience indeed almost a sense of immorality in having to recognize that she was as she said carried away she laughed to Billy when she also said that she didn't know where it would end, and the principles of her uneasiness was that Miss Lauder's life bristled for her with elements that she was really having to look at for the first time. They represented, she believed, the world, the world that, as a consequence of the cold shoulder turned to it by the Pilgrim Fathers, had never yet boldly crossed to Boston. It would surely have sunk the stoutest Cunadar, and she couldn't pretend that she faced the prospect simply because Milly had had a caprice. She was in the act herself of having one, directed precisely to their present spectacle. She could but seek strength in the thought that she had never had one, or had never yielded to one, which came to the same thing before. The sustaining sense of it all, moreover, as a literary material, that quite dropped from her. She must wait at any rate she should see, it struck her, so far as she had got a vast, obscure, lurid. She reflected in the watches of the night that she was probably just going to love it for itself, that is, for itself and Milly. The odd thing is that she could think of Milly's loving it without dread, or with dread at least not on the score of conscience, only on the score of peace. It was a mercy at all events for the hour that their two spirits jumped together while for the first week that followed their dinner she drank deep at lancaster gate her companion was no less happily appeared to be indeed on the whole quite as romantically provided for the handsome english girl from the heavy english house had been as a figure in a picture stepping by magic out of its frame it was a case in truth for which Mrs. Stringham presently found the perfect image. She had lost none of her grasp, but quite the contrary. 
of that other conceit and virtue of which Milly was the wandering princess. So what could be more in harmony now than to see the princess waited upon at the city gate by the worthiest maiden, the chosen daughter of the Burgesses? It was the real again, evidently the amusement of the meeting for the princesses too, princesses living for the most part in such an appeased way on the plane of mere elegant representation. That was why they pounced at city gates, on deputed flower-strewing damsels. That was why, after effigies, processions, and other stately games, frank human company was pleasant to them. Kate Croy really presented herself to Milly. The latter abounded for Miss Stringham in accounts of it as the wondrous London girl in person, by what she had conceived from far back of the London girl, conceived from the tales of travelers and the anecdotes of New York, from old pourings over punch and a liberal acquaintance with the fiction of the day. The only thing was that she was nicer, since the creature in question had rather been, to our young woman, an image of dread. She had thought of her, at her best, as handsome, just as Kate was, with turns of head and tones of voice, felicities of stature and attitude, things put on and, for that matter, put off, all the marks of the product of a packed society, who should be at the same time the heroine of a strong story. She placed a striking young person from the first in a story, saw her, by a necessity of the imagination, for a heroine felt it was the only character in which she wouldn't be wasted, and this in spite of the heroine's pleasant abruptness, her forbearance from gush, her umbrellas and jackets and shoes, as these things sketched themselves to Milly, and something rather of a breezy boy in the carriage of her arms and the occasional freedom of her slang. When Milly had settled that the extent of her good will itself made her shy, she had found for the moment quite a sufficient key, and they were by that time thoroughly afloat together. This might well have been the happiest hour they were to know, attacking in friendly independence their great London, the London of shops and streets and suburbs oddly interesting to Milly, as well as of museums, monuments, sights oddly unfamiliar to Kate, while their elders pursued a separate course, these two rejoicing not less in their intimacy and each thinking the other's young woman a great acquisition for her own. Milly expressed to Susan Shepherd more than once that Kate had some secret, some smothered trouble, besides all the rest of her history, and that if she had so good-naturedly helped Miss Lowder to meet them, this was exactly to create a diversion, to give herself something else to think about. But on the case thus postulated, our young American had as yet had no light. She only felt that when the light should come it would greatly deepen the color, and she liked to think that she was preparing for anything. What she already knew, moreover, was full to her vision, of English, of eccentric, of facularian character. Kate Croy, having gradually become not a little explicit on the subject of her situation, her past, her present, her general predicament, her small success up to the present hour, in contenting at the same time her father, her sister, her aunt, and herself. It was Milly's subtle guess, imparted to her Susie, that the girl had somebody else as well, as yet unnamed, to content, it being manifest to such a creature couldn't help having, a creature not perhaps, 
if one would exactly form to inspire passions, since that always implied a certain silliness, but essentially seen by the admiring eye of friendship under the clear shadow of some probably eminent male interest. The clear shadow, from whatever source projected, hung at any rate over Milly's companion the whole week, and Kate Croy's handsome face smiled out of it, under bland skylights in the presence alike of old masters passive in their glory, and of thoroughly new ones, the newest who bristled relentlessly with pins and brandished snipping shears. It was, meanwhile, a pretty part of the intercourse of these young ladies that each thought the other more remarkable than herself, than each thought of herself, or assured that the other she did, a comparatively dusty object, and the other a favorite of nature and of fortune, and covered thereby with the freshness of the morning. Kate was amused, amazed, at the way her friend insisted on taking her, and Milly wondered if Kate were sincere in finding her the most extraordinary, quite apart from her being the most charming person she had come across. They had talked in long drives, and quantities of history have not been wanting, in the light of which Miss Lowder's niece might superficially seem to have had the best of the argument. Her visitor's American references, with their bewildering immensities, their confounding moneyed New York, their excitements of high pressure, their opportunities of wild freedom, their record of used-up relatives, parents, clever, eager, fair, slim brothers, these the most loved, all engaged, as well as successive superseded guardians, in the high extravagance of speculation and dissipation that had left this exquisite being her black dress, her white face, and her vivid hair, as the mere last broken link. Such a picture quite threw into the shade of the brief biography, however sketchily amplified, of a mere middle-class nobody in Baywater. And though that indeed might be but a Baywater way of putting it, in addition to which Milly was in the stage of interest in Baywater ways, this critic so far prevailed that, like Miss Stringham herself, she fairly got her companion to accept from her that she was quite the nearest approach to a practical princess Baywater could ever hope to know. It was a fact. It became one at the end of three days that Milly actually began to borrow from the handsome girl a sort of view of her state. The handsome girl's impression of it was clearly so sincere. This impression was a tribute, a tribute positively to the power, power to the source, of which was the last thing Kate treated as a mystery. There were passages under all their skylights, the succession of their shops being large, in which the latter easy yet the least bit dry manner sufficiently gave out that if she had had so deep a pocket, it was not moreover by any means with not having the imagination of expenditure that she appeared to charge her friend, but with not having the imagination of terror of thrift, the imagination or in any degree the habit of conscious dependence on others, such moments when all Wingmore Street, for instance, seemed to rustle about and the pale girl herself to be facing the different rustlers, unusually so undiscriminated as individual Britons too, Britons' personnel, parties to a relation and perhaps even intrinsically remarkable. Such moments in especial determined for Kate a perception of high happiness of her companion's liberty. Milly's range was thus immense. 
She had to ask nobody for anything, to referring nothing to anyone. Her freedom, her fortune, and her fancy were her law. An obsequious world surrounded her. She could sniff up at every step its fumes. And Kate, these days, was altogether in the phase of forgiving her so much bliss, in the phase, moreover, of believing that, should they continue to go on together, she would abide in that generosity. She had, at such a point, as this is no suspicion of a rift within the lute, by which we mean not only none of anything's coming between them, but none of any definite flaw in so much clearness of quality. Yet, all the same, if Milly and Mrs. Lowder's banquet had described herself to Lord Mark as kindly used by the young women on the other side, because of some faintly felt special propriety in it, so there really did match with this privately on the young woman's part a feeling not analyzed but divided a latent impression that mildred thiel was not after all a person to change places to change even chances with kate verily would perhaps not quite have known what she meant by this discrimination and she came near naming it only when she said to herself that, rich as Millie was, one probably wouldn't, which was singular, ever hate her for it. The handsome girl had, with herself, these felicities and crudities. It wasn't obscure to her that, without some very particular reason to help, it might have proved a test of one's philosophy not to be irritated by a mistress of millions, or whatever they were, who, as a girl, so easily might have been like herself, only vague and cruelly female. She was by no means sure of liking Aunt Maud as much as she deserved, and Aunt Maud's command of funds was obviously inferior to Milly's. There was thus clearly, as pleading for the latter, some influence that would later on become distinct, and meanwhile decidingly, it was enough that she was as charming as she was queer, and as queer as she was charming, all of which was a rare amusement as well, for that matter, as further sufficient that there were objects of value that she had already pressed on Kate's acceptance. A week of her society in these conditions, conditions that Milly chose to sum up as ministering immensely for a blind, vague pilgrim to aid and comfort announce itself from an early hour as likely to become a week of presents, acknowledgments, mementos, pledges of gratitude and admiration that were all on one side. Kate has promptly embraced the propriety of making it clear that she must forswear shops till she should receive some guarantee that the contents of each one she entered as a humble companion shouldn't be placed at her feet. Yet that was in truth not before she had found herself in possession, under whatever protests, of several precious ornaments and other minor conveniences. Great was the absurdity, too, that there should have come a day, by the end of the week, when it appeared that all Milly would have asked in definite return, as might be said, was to be told a little about Lord Mark, and to be promised the privilege of a visit to Mrs. Condrip. Far other amusements had been offered her, but her eagerness was shamelessly human, and she seemed really to count more on the revelation of the anxious lady at Chelsea than on the best nights of the opera. Kate admired, and it showed such an absence of fear. To the fear of being bored in such a connection she would have been so obviously entitled, 
Milly's answer to this was the plea of her curiosities, which left her friend wondering as to their odd direction. Some among them, no doubt, were rather more intelligible, and Kate had heard without wonder that she was blank about Lord Mark. This young lady's account of him, at the same time, professed itself frankly imperfect, for what they best knew him by at Lancaster Gate was a thing difficult to explain. One knew people in general by something they had to show, something that, either for them or against, could be touched or named or proved. And she could think of no other case of a value taken as so great and yet flourishing untested. His value was his future, which had somehow got itself as accepted by Aunt Maud as if it had been his good cook or his steam launch. She, Kate, didn't mean she thought him a humbug. He might do great things, but they were as yet, so to speak, all he had done. On the other hand, it was, of course, something of an achievement, and not open to everyone, to have got oneself taken so seriously by Aunt Maud. The best thing about him, doubtless, on the whole, was that Aunt Maud believed in him. She was often fantastic, but she knew a humbug, and no, Lord Mark wasn't that. He had been a short time in the house, on the Tory side, but had lost his seat on the first opportunity, and this was all he had to point to. However, he pointed to nothing which was very possibly just a sign of his real cleverness, one of those that the really clever had in common with the really void. Even Aunt Maud frequently admitted that there was a good deal for her view of him to bring up the rear. And he wasn't meanwhile himself indifferent, indifferent to himself, for he was working Lancaster Gate for all it was worth, just as it was, no doubt, working him, and just as the working and the worked were in London, as one might explain, the parties to every relation. Kate did explain, for her listening friend, every one who had anything to give, it was true they were the fewest, made the sharpest possible bargain for it, got at last its value in return. The strangest thing, furthermore, was that this might be in cases a happy understanding. The worker in one connection was the worked in another, and it was as broad as it was long, with the wheels of the system, as might be seen, wonderfully oiled. People could quite like each other in the midst of it, as Aunt Maud, by every appearance, quite like Lord Mark, and as Lord Mark, it was to be hoped, like Miss Lowder, since if he didn't, he was a greater brute than one could believe. She, Kate, hadn't yet, it was true, made out what he was doing for her, besides which the dear woman needed him, even at the most he could do, much less what she imagined. So far as all of which went, moreover, there were plenty of things on every side she hadn't yet made out. She believed on the whole, in any one Aunt Maud took up, and she gave it to Milly, as worth thinking of that, whatever wonderful people this young lady might meet in the land, she would meet no more extraordinary women. There were greater celebrities by the million, and of course greater swells, but a higher person, by Kate's view, and a larger natural handful every way, would really be far to seek. When Milly inquired with interest if Kate's belief in her was primarily on the lines of what Miss Lowder took up, her interlocutress could handsomely say yes, since by the same principle she believed in herself. 
whom but Aunt Maud's niece preeminently had Aunt Maud taken up, and who was thus more in the current with her, of working and of being worked. You may ask, Kate said, what in the world I have to give, and that indeed is just what I'm trying to learn. There must be something for her to think she can get it out of me. She will get it, trust her, and then I shall see what it is, which I beg you to believe I should never have found out for myself. She declined to treat any question of Milly's own paying power as discussable, that Milly would pay a hundred percent, and even to the end, doubtless, through the nose, was just a beautiful basis on which they found themselves. These were fine facilities, pleasantries, ironies, all these luxuries of gossip and philosophies of London and of life, and they became quickly, between the pair, the common form of talk. Milly, professing herself delighted to know that something was to be done with her, if the most remarkable woman in England was to do it, so much the better. And if the most remarkable woman in England had them both in hand together, why, what could be jollier for each? When she reflected indeed a little on the oddity of her wanting to at once, Kate had made the natural reply that it was exactly what showed her sincerity. She invariably gave way to feeling, and feeling had distinctly popped up in her, on the advent of her girlhood's friend. The way the cat would jump was always in the presence of anything that moved her. Interesting to see, visibly enough, moreover, it hadn't for a long time jumped anything like so far. This, in fact, as we already know, remained the marvel for Milly Thiel, who, on sight of Miss Lowder, had found fifty links in respect to Susie absent from the chain of association. She knew so herself what she thought of Susie, that she would have expected the lady of Lancaster Gate to think something quite different, a failure of which endlessly mystified her. But in her mystification was the cause for her of another fine impression, inasmuch as when she went so far as to observe to Kate that Susan Shepherd, and especially Susan Shepherd emerging so uninvited from the relevant past, ought by all the proprieties simply to have bored Aunt Maud, her confidant agreed to this without a protest and abounded in a sense of her wonder. Susan Shepherd at least bore the niece. That was plain. This young woman saw nothing in her, nothing to account for anything, not even for Milly's own indulgence, which little fact became in turn to the latter's mind a fact of significance. It was a light on the handsome girl representing more than merely showed that poor Susie was simply as naught to her. This was in a manner, too, a general adomination to poor Susie's companion, who seemed to see marked by it the direction in which she had best most look out. It just faintly rattled her, and that a person who was good enough to spare for Milly Thiel shouldn't be good enough for another girl, though, oddly enough, she could easily have forgiven Miss Lowder herself the impatience. Mrs. Lowder didn't feel it, and Kate Croy felt it with ease. Yet, in the end, be it added, she grasped the reason, and the reason enriched her mind. Wasn't it sufficiently the reason that the handsome girl was, with twenty other splendid qualities, the least bit brutal to? And didn't she suggest, as no one yet had ever done for her new friend, that there might be a wild beauty in that, 
and even a strange grace? Kate wasn't brutally brutal, which Milly had hitherto benightingly supposed the only way. She wasn't even aggressively so, but rather indifferently, defensively, and, as might be said, by the habit of anticipation. She simplified in advance, was beforehand with her doubts, and knew with singular quickness what she wasn't, as they say in New York, going to like. In that way, at least, people were clearly quicker in England than at home, and Milly could quite see after a little how such instincts might become usual in a world in which dangers abounded. There were clearly more dangers round about Lancaster Gate than one suspected in New York or could dream of in Boston. At all events, with more sense of them, there were more precautions, and it was a remarkable world altogether in which there could be precautions on whatever ground against Susie. End of Book Fourth, Chapter Two. Recording by Ken Campbell.